Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. Uh, this is a podcast. Perhaps you've heard of them. We read things. Perhaps you've heard of it. And uh, one of the things that we read was a novella called The Death of Ivan Illich, or Ivan Illich, by Leo Tolstoy. I'm 100% going to Americanize it and just call him Ivan Illich. Okay, that's fine. So uh, if this is a Borgia Borges thing, then that's what we're going with. It was Borges, I think. Borges, Borges. We were, we were as wrong as you possibly be. Well, let's talk about this novella, because this is considered the height of a perfect example of a well-written novella. It's an iconic work, as they say. Do you want to go into the actual real-world background? Because I don't have any notes on that, but I know sometimes you do. Sure. So this was written in 1886, by Leo Tolstoy, mm-hmm. and this is his one. It's one of his considered his later works, his post conversion works, and that's kind of a reflection in what happens in the story. But if you think about it, he wrote War and Peace in 1869, and then he wrote Anna Karenina in 1878. So this is sort of he's he was in context dealing with both this sort of moral and existential investigation in his life as well as dealing with what he called chronic writer's block so for seven years he didn't write anything and then the next thing that he publicly produces is this novella yeah so i'm I'm gonna call it right now i know that you're not supposed to diagnose people that you don't know especially if they're dead russian writers from like a hundred years ago but uh, he he was depressed. He just had he had depression. That's what the chronic writer's block was. He was depressed, and then he wrote a book about a guy who was dying. Well, I mean that's one take, you know. But there, of course, are many others. So he is, as a writer, considered a Russian realist. Sure. So he writes what he considers to be um, a social novel. It's it's novels that are contemporary to the time that he's living in. They all deal with societal class issues, and they're all, in his opinion, snapshots of the current culture. I guess the affluent culture mostly in Russia at the time. To go back to his Christian conversion, for most of his life, I guess Tolstoy, was he considered himself an aesthetic moral. So he was very concerned about the trappings of the upper class and the moral obligation and imperative that were given to people who were affluent or aristocracy or people who had some influence in society. And then around at this time, he starts to read Schopenhauer and he starts to have this sort of moral crisis where he starts to question the morals and the things that he held dear, which were this trapping of aristocracy. So he starts to move into this sort of questioning about um, religion and the role of the affluent in society. And he goes through this period where he converts openly to Christianity. So... Yeah, and then um, I think six or eight years later... He writes, the kingdom of God is within you, which is sort of like the foundational text of Christian anarchism. But here's the thing. Once he gets to the point where he's questioned, once he goes through like this kind of like iconic, like 
moral existential self-examination that like usually everybody goes through like in their early um 20s or their late teens he goes through it in his middle age and then he comes up with this really extreme opinion that the only way to deal with this moral dilemma is anarchism so he becomes a christian anarchist and then he starts to write reflection of that and then he decides that all of the aristocracy you know aristocracy that he held dear in his early writing career and in his most iconic works he immediately rejects and then this i kind of see it when we get into talking about like what's going on in the, in the novella this is sort of that bridge work that is saying goodbye to his moral beliefs and holding himself accountable for his you know what he considers his lack of like direction in his moral and his you know his philosophical life and then after this he starts to fully embrace this sort of mild version of anarchism that he wants to help push along so i just want to say that i don't think it's that really notable that he went through this in the middle of his life because we kind of have like a whole term for that phenomenon you know, it's called a midlife crisis. Yeah, but most for people, a reason. I guess that's true, but it it seems like a really for being like a fat cat who like lived his life living off the laurels of the work that he did, where he where he pretty much paid homage to the bourgeois, and then all of a sudden saying, "Well, that's totally in you know that's totally wrong," and the you know, and then he starts saying things like. You know the the rich people are a burden morally and economically to the poor people, but meanwhile, you know he lives in mansions and his literature and has fed him this opulent lifestyle, which for the most of his life and most of his family's life, they enjoyed. I mean, he went through this Christian phase I mean, about moral, thing. you know, authority, and then he he didn't do anything to change his lifestyle. He just changed his philosophical thinking. I think this, though, his lukewarm acceptance of anarchism, if he would have embraced that with the fervor that he embraced being, you know, an aristocratic writer, then he probably, I mean, it takes a long time to get from war and peace to the, you know, the Soviet, the revolution in the yeah. early 1900s. Well, this is still, by the time this book comes out, um, we're still, you know, what, what, like... 30, over 30 years away from the revolution. I don't think it's lukewarm. I think it's pretty unavoidable the whole moral of this novel is that society is evil and it kills your soul. Right, but I mean, this from a man who spent the last 30 years of his career getting rich, commenting, and, you know, building up the the society that, you know, gave him all the benefits and perks of this privileged life so that he would have time to have this social reflection meanwhile then he goes on to say well you know rich are a burden on the poor he doesn't do anything to help the poor or do anything to change his status to reflect his philosophical views how i don't know it just feels like people who are like oh you hate capitalism why you have an iphone huh eh? what are you gonna do about that if he was around today he would have been called out on twitter for being a phony that's pretty much what I think about his... I mean, uh, his moral conversion might have been an authentic moral conversion, but I kind of always, like, when I think about Tolstoy, I kind of get this whole, like, Victor Hugo kind of, like, 
vibe of like he's more critical in his writing of society than he was in his actions. I mean, the whole concept of writing is social. First of all, here's let me just disclaim that. I had no idea that there was such a term as a social novel until literally this week. Really? When totally unrelated to talking about Tolstoy, this term came up. And it kind of like opened my eyes because I guess I really didn't think of like, I, I knew about realism and the realist movement in literature, but I never really heard the term social novel. And then once I heard that term, I saw it. In regards to Tolstoy and the work that he did, and then also started to see when I was went down this rabbit hole of like thinking about Tolstoy, thinking about Victor Hugo, and then sort of came to this whole conclusion of like a social novel is a novel written in the realist style. Yeah, I do just want to say um, he was not all talk. He like founded a bunch of schools for peasants. I kind of the only the thing that gets me is like when. There's these, like, really rabid conversions to Catholicism that, you know, it becomes almost like a Charles Dickens thing where it's, like, you know, it's all, like, frantic screaming about, like, you know, Catholic philosophy and kind of, like, okay, let, let's get into this actual, let's talk about the novella. Let's see what's going on here. Okay. <laughs> so why don't you give us a sort of a summary of... Sure. The actual novella. Ivan Illich is a middle-class bureaucrat in Russia, and he develops a mysterious affliction that causes him immense pain, and then he dies. That's pretty much all that actually happens in the novel. I mean, there's a lot of self-reflection. It starts with his uh, colleagues finding out about his death and one of them attending his funeral and then flashes back to the beginning of his life and kind of tells an abridged version of his life story up until he falls ill and then we spend uh, the last few chapters with him in the throes of his illness sort of examining his temperament and how it changes as his illness deepens and he's forced to interact with doctors and as he fights with his wife and then we get a sort of quick first person account of like how what it is like for him to die I think, I mean, you had said this is like a novella where nothing really happens. And I guess that's true. But I think the sophistication of this novella comes from, I mean, not only do you have this sort of his like, Ivan goes from having this like happy-go-lucky life that he he built for himself with little resistance to this sort of dire situation where now he's ill and he's forced to examine his life and the choices that he made. And then also on the side of it, you also see from his point of view now, you see how he sees how the people he surrounded himself with observe him and how they interact. Because, I mean, it's really kind of cold-blooded when the novella opens and they're all sort of these men who are these men of leisure who are, you know, just resting around and having a social time are sort of really, like, callously, like, talking about Ivan Ilyich his death and himself. Meanwhile, they're not. None of them are sad, even though they claim to be his friends. So the book starts with, like I said, with Ivan's colleagues finding out about his death, and we're sort of given this really quick snapshot of these guys as these emotionally inert bureaucrats. None of them. I mean, the, the sort of the, the big thing 
of the novella is that like nobody has genuine emotions. <laughs> These guys. What, what do you think about the opening? Well, I think it's exactly like you're saying. Tolstoy is setting up this sort of small vignette of this view of these sort of um, vapid social climbing um, individuals who, I guess, when Ivan was well and he was at his prime, he embraced this lifestyle. And then as the novel goes on and he becomes sick, he starts to think about you know, his life. And this is where you learn about how he had climbed up from being a lowly law clerk to being like a magistrate. And he had created this sort of affluent world. And he married a woman who he thought was socially equal to him. And they have this sort of tenuous connection where they're connected socially, but there's no real attachment. And then he has these children that you know, they are benefiting from his affluence and they've become even more detached and they're even more of social climbers without what Ivan Ilyich considers a work ethic. And then he has these sort of friends that before, when he wasn't ill and he didn't really need anything from any kind of emotional support from friends were fine, but now that he's sick and he's ill, these people have almost abandoned him. And then that's what's interesting about... Because one of the parts that I find most interesting is that all of the people, when he's sick... At first he's sick and he kind of covers it up and he says, I'm not really that sick. I'm just under the weather. And then his family doesn't pay him any attention. And then he starts to get upset when he's really sick and no one says, oh, well, you, you, you're really sick. We need to take care of you. And the only person who offers him human comfort is his manservant, who is very patient and willing to do anything to comfort him. And then they have this really weird scene. And this is the part where I was like, okay, this is where Nate's going to really kind of really have to like dig into this novel because he has this poor servant whose role is literally to like crouch on the floor and hold his feet up so that he gets comfort. And then this man stays like that for hours comforting Ivan Ilyich who's suffering from this weird, vague could be an appendix could be a kidney we really don't know what's wrong with him he he's like hanging curtains and he falls down and then starts this terrible path but what did you think of the character of the manservant um he's interesting it's i mean he's not he's actually not interesting he's he's pretty boring as a person he's just kind of a, a guy a menial laborer we don't really get any insight into his internal life i mean his role in the novel is basically just to I think it's interesting that you brought up Tolstoy as a realist in the beginning because I don't believe that this is at all a realist novel. I think this is incredibly non-literal. I think, like, the thing that Ivan is dying from is life. He doesn't have an illness. He just can't comprehend that he, like, so much of this novel is about him coming to terms with the fact that he can and will die. Let me see if I can find the quote because there's this part which i think might be the best part of the novel at least the most like like uh raw is he's like is the one where he like most directly confronts his own mortality um but i don't i don't have it on let me see if i can anyway he's talking about like i think it's like a greek philosopher or something and the, or a roman or i don't know but the phrase is like kai's is a man and kai's will die and it's this phrase that's been like knocking around in his head 
since he was a kid. And he talks very bluntly about, like, yeah, Caius will die, but, like, not me, right? Surely I'm special. Surely I won't die. And it's the same sort of um, obfuscation of our own mortality that everybody kind of has, where you everybody kind of thinks deep down, like, well, yeah, but, like, I'm special. I'm not going to die. I'm supposed to do something more important. And then he kind of has this uh, confrontation with the concept of mortality. And I think that's what's going on with his illness is it's just, it's just death, but he can't initially accept that he's going to die. So he believes it to be this sort of mysterious illness. And uh, Garasim is basically just kind of there to act as this illustration of like, he's there to act as a counterpoint to all the people, to Ivan himself and to all the people he sort of surrounded himself with who live by society's strictures and have sort of cut themselves off from genuine emotion and compassion. And I think the thing with him holding his legs is that, like, what Ivan really needs is not any actual sort of, like, physical chiropracty to relieve his pain. He needs uh, to be, like, touched and held and cared for by another person and... He can't. He can't just ask Garasim, hey, "Hey, will you like care? Please care about me." Well, he, he has like he has to ask him for something specific, and so the way it is illustrated is by Garasim holding his legs and literally supporting him, and that relieves his pain. I don't think he can ask his manservant to comfort him because of the social constraints that kind of like his role mm-hmm. as the upper class and his servant's role as the working class, he really can't. I th- I saw this part as sort of the heavy-handed description of when Tolstoy says that, you know, the rich are a burden economically and morally on the poor. This is like, a, this is literally what he is. He is physically a burden on his manservant because his manservant is forced to prop him up for hours. Yeah, but... I I think that this is I think calling this a social novel makes a lot of sense to me more than calling this like a like a Marxist or radical novel because I don't think there's I think there's much less of a class commentary than you might think because Garasim says explicitly that he would do this no matter what that he's not doing it because he's Ivan's manservant he's doing it because Ivan's sick and he needs someone to help him. I, do, I think you're right, but I also don't... I agree with you. This is not a novel about social roles. Nor do I think this is a novel about confronting your own mortality. What I think this is, is this is Tolstoy, who believes during his own religious conversion that you need to examine your life. And... Mm. A lot of he is saying that Ivan is not has not examined his life. He has not had a moral awakening, some kind of philosophical awakening, and this disease that he is suffering from is a sort of disease of the soul, where his where he has not had that introspective conversion that he needs to have to live a full life, and that Ivan, as being like morally vapid, has contracted this. 
disease as a way to wake up and to for him to start to examine his life and examine the role that he plays in his own life and to other people. I can see that. I don't think I necessarily agree. I think that, like, what Tolstoy is getting at here is not so much that you should... Like, examining your life is fine if it helps you reach the right conclusion, then go for it. But, like, Gerasim is presented as the sort of ideal alternative to people like Ivan and the people around him. And Gerasim is not terribly self-reflective or even self-aware as far as we can see. The thing that's important about Gerasim and that makes him, you know, worthy of praise in this story is that he lives, like, authentically. I think the problem that Tolstoy has is that society, the way it's set up, encourages you to suck. Ivan, so Ivan goes on and on and on about uh, comme il faut and living and acting decorously. So, like... Both of those are words are they basically mean the same thing. They're like doing things the way they're supposed to be done, observing decor. And because he follows society's rules and decorum as the guiding principles of his life, everything he does is perfunctory. And he doesn't do anything out of a genuine emotion. He does them all because they're things that he feels like he's supposed to do. So, like, when he decorates his house, he decorates it exactly the way that someone of his social standing should and would decorate their house. I, I think that that's... It makes sense that he would go from this to writing, like, an anarchist manifesto. Well, I think it's also clear... I mean, what's hard for me to resolve with that is that, yes, he does all have all these societal obligations... But when he's ill and he's clamoring for attention and for care, he's mad at his family who are just doing exactly what he is doing when he was healthy. They're leading their lives and they're going along in this, you know, the role they play in society. And he gets upset with that. Yeah. And then when he's dying, he has a moment of empathy where he realizes what's happening with them. And he asks and fails to receive or even really fully ask for forgiveness. That's why I think, like, this whole concept in the novel of, like, Ivan and his wife and Ivan and his children, they're all just sort of living these very similar but parallel lives where they're not, they don't really interact with each other. They're sort of just going along at their own pace. And, you know, when Ivan's reflecting on his life, his whole thing was, like, I don't understand this. I did everything right. I went, I, you know, I moved up the ladder professionally. We moved up socially. My wife did all of these things to kind of make us more socially important. My children are well-educated. But why are we all so terrible? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, he gets to the end when he's dying and he looks back on his life and he, he basically says, I never, because I was constantly doing the correct thing, I never did the right thing. And his life was like, you know, it was not the right life, which is what he keeps going back to is like, you know, all of this would be justified if I wasn't living the right life. And in his final moments, he realizes that he wasn't living the right life. He was living this sort of perfunctory, decorous existence. And then a lot of the book is also about realizing that you're not special. Like, Ivan decorates his house and it looks like everyone else's house and no one really cares, even though he put all... This work into making sure it's exactly right. It doesn't impress anyone because it's exactly right. And I think that's the thing with him at the end of the novel is he 
looks at his wife and his kids and realizes that like they feel pain too. The whole time he was suffering, they were suffering too, and he didn't. He, I, I think that's another uh, another sort of. If you take the novel as being like examine your life, I think at the end one of the things that really comes out is like examine everyone's life too, because Ivan spends all this time self reflecting and reaching this uh, you know realization about his own morality and mortality, and then he realizes he never spent any time doing that in regards to the people around him, and they've suffered for it, and like that's I think that's why he can't. He tries to say forgive me to his son at the end, and all he can get out is forego. And I think that's like a reflection of that. Like he, even at the end, even as he's like had this realization, he still has like fucked up in this monumentous way that has harmed everyone around him. That's why I think in the beginning, when you're reading the novel and you're like, "Oh, this poor man has died," and everyone's so cold blooded, as the novel goes on and you learn more about the societal regiment that these people are living in, you realize that they're not they're not actually cold and detached. They're just performing their role. Like, their role in society is not to be emotional. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that his wife just keeps on going on with her social obligations while he's dying is is almost like she's not... It's not that she doesn't care about him emotionally. Mm -hmm. It's that she knows that he prefers to keep this society, you know, these construct of society. So she doesn't want the people in their social group to know that he's dying and sick and having all of these problems because to her, she knows to her that are to the society's view of them is very important. Mm -hmm. So they don't want to appear weak or sick or poor or beneath any of the people in their social group. Yeah, sure. Do you think this is a story about reincarnation? Because it ends with Ivan dying and the phrase death is over and it begins with Ivan having died, which means that the book is a loop. I mean, that's an interesting take. I don't know about that. I think what kind of really, um, the part that really stumped me, like, what is this about? Was the whole phrase, the artificial life. Like, like what does that mean? I mean, I think that's the thing we were talking about. It's, it's the life where you, every decision you make is based on, what you're supposed to do, and none of them are based on genuine your genuine feelings and your genuine like a genuine sense of like compassion or righteousness. It's Ivan's life is artificial because every choice he made is based on a thing that exists outside of him, which is the construct of society and civilization. Yeah, but I think you know what he kind of if he was truly reflecting on his life and the choices that he made and his lack of moral, you know, growth, then he, but then he's very judgy of his family because they are not in the process of going through the same, you know, philosophical awareness that he's going through. And that kind of seems like he's almost like he has a sort of a sense of entitlement. Yeah, like I know. He deserves these things. He deserves everything he gets in his like upwardly mobile life. But now that he doesn't want that and rejects that, now he deserves everything that he wants in his moral and existential crisis. I don't think that's the case though, because of the ending with the wife and the kid. Like, I think that's. Yeah, but I think like he, while he's going through this journey this sort of single person like you have to go on your own philosophical journey you can't it's not a group activity it's a it's a single solitary activity 
but for some reason he he wants I mean he's physically laying in the middle of their like living space on the couch because he won't go in the bed and he's just laying there moaning and crying out and and having this sort of like philosophical torment like and his fam and he's upset that his family is not paying more attention to him. Yeah, but it also acknowledges that he could well, he could talk to them and he could ask them for the comfort that he that he wants and he he can't bring himself to do it. So all he can do is cry and scream. I mean, I I I don't know. Like I don't think that the book is on Ivan's side really. Like he still dies, you know, in pain, he just dies with a sense of understanding. I think that's that's why, in my mind, it's almost like Tolstoy is saying, if you don't examine your life, if you don't reject the sort of the trappings of the bourgeois, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to suffer a moral and philosophical crisis, and this is what's going to happen. This, like, his sickness is the manifestation of what's happening to your soul. Sure. I mean, I think what he's saying is, like, we're all... Everyone's going to suffer and die. Caius is a man and Caius will die. But if you if you don't examine your life, if you, if you operate under this assumption that you're doing everything correctly, then you're going to suffer and not understand it, and it's going to make your suffering worse. I was thinking the whole time that I was reading, and I'm trying to find the... Um, the quote, you know, that whole thing about every man dies alone... You know, that kind of like, despite the, I mean, even if he had a room full of his family weeping and rendering their clothes and his wife prostrate on the ground crying for his demise, he's making that mental journey by himself. Sure. Well, I mean, it's a mental journey. (laughs) It happens in your mind. But it's like, I don't know. I guess it's, it's clearly to me that this is Tolstoy's bridge between his new philosophical mindset and kind of chastising and criticizing his old way of life and then moving towards the future, like you said, where he starts to really embrace his sort of Catholicism, his, like, social anarchy and all that kind of thing that he starts to move into. Sure, yeah. But I think, like, to Tolstoy, like... Like, it's sinful in his mind to what he considers waste your life. And I think he's showing Ivan Ilyich as an example of a man who had all these opportunities and then chose the easiest, least resistance, the path of least resistance in his life. Mm -hmm. And that to him was like a moral disease. But I don't understand, he doesn't really like... Like you could, like he says, okay, Ivan is like he's dying and he's reflecting back on his life and he's saying that like being a socially climbing, um, you know, man with ambitions to be well liked in society is wrong. But he doesn't really say like there's no like kind of like point in Ivan's life where he said, let me do what I want that would make me most happy or let me be a social climber. He's always presented as a social climber. It's not like he made a choice. Or he made a conscious choice at some point in his life to say, I don't want to move up the social well, ladder. The whole point is that he doesn't make a choice. His, the, the problem is, is that he has made a life with no choices. Like, because I, the, the conflict is never like, oh, 
think about all the people you hurt, Ivan, or all the people you could have helped. It's more just about, like, it's not even so much that he lived the wrong life, is that he didn't live in, like, in his whole life. He was, he just acted decorously. He might as well have just been a robot. But I think any, Tolstoy could have looked at every single person in Russia at that time and said the same thing. That's what he's doing. Ivan is everyone in Russia. But I think it's like, I don't know, if the, if the story is supposed to be you need to examine your life and you need to make choices that are the best for everyone and you need to move away from this sort of, you know, aristocracy and this sort of affluent, socially mobile lifestyle and start to live a life with value and stop being a burden on the poor morally and economically, like... He's telling people to do that, but there's no real, like, sort of path of how he thinks people can get there. I don't think he's telling people to do that. I don't think that's what this is about. It's, it's not, it's, I think it's more simple than that. It's really just, like, let yourself have emotions and feelings. But it's, like. And act in regard to those and not, not necessarily just by what you think you're supposed to do. But if Ivan Ilyich has a disease of the soul and that disease is cured by awareness. When he gets that awareness, he's still not cured. He just dies. It's not, but yeah, it isn't cured by awareness. It just helps him understand. Because you can't cure it. Because the disease is dying, and we're all dying, <laughs> Truman. <laughs> we're, all, we're all, we've all got a pain in our side that's going to get worse and worse until we're dead. Well, how does this compare to more philosophical works to art to writers that are considered more um philosophical like someone like maybe like kafka or camus or like even like gogol like how does tolstoy's this particular work how does that fit into this sort of greater scheme of philosophical novels that are coming out at the same time i think kafka has an interesting point to bring up because i think this story is very similar to the metamorphosis it's just more mundane like, you know, when we see the people around Ivan, like, they they all suck. Tolstoy just doesn't go the extra leap of, like, the fantastic to turn them into literal bugs. But it's still, like, a story about a guy who, you know, lives this sort of unexamined, perfunctory life, and then something bad happens to him that forces him to contemplate his place in the universe. I think the difference is that, like, Kafka has more of a streak of nihilism in him. And he's more willing to play with the the fantastic. But I think that we see Tolstoy a little bit getting into that. Like I said, I think this novel's less literal than his previous works. Hmm. That's interesting. I don't know. I kind of see, like, Tolstoy maybe in his early career being, like, the Russian Henry James... Maybe. You know, like, society embraced him because he wrote these novels that were so sweepingly epic, but yet about society, the way that, you know, the people he was reaching appealed to him. I mean, it was like the the upper class were reading, like, War and Peace and Anna Karenina, 
because like the lower classes didn't have access to the sort of benefits of the upper. I mean, in, in Russia, there's really, there was like a really strong social class system. And I think that was part of the problem. Tolstoy, he was in that upper class and then he sort of had this awareness and then he was like, we're, we're really being unfair to the lower classes. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was surprised because I thought for sure you would be really on him about his like view of like, the lower classes because even when he has this awakening where he's like we're we're you know a moral scourge on these people he really has this sort of affluent way of looking at it you know he really has this sort of like entitled life and that even when he starts to do good things he only does the good things that he wants to do but he doesn't go on to write a novel that's the equivalent of Les Miserables I mean he doesn't like start writing well he's got chronic writer's book <laughs> no i was i no i didn't i i wasn't prepared to dig into him i like tolstoy a lot i do too and i have i mean we talked about this a lot about there's novels that many people claim there's more people claim to have read than actually have read and i think war and peace and anna karenina are two of those novels everyone knows the plots of those stories but how many people have actually physically read those novels? I think you can interpret this story as being an anti-work parable. Because uh, Ivan really only gets the time and the space to self-reflect once he is dying and is removed from society and from his, his expectations in society. I also thought it was kind of, yeah. I thought it was kind of sort of like, I felt the... Instead of feeling bad for him because he was dying, like you were, like Tolstoy wanted you to, I felt more sorry for him about the fact that he had spent his years and years and years working and he had created this lifestyle for his family. And then, like you said, he finally got to like be home and to reflect on his life. And his family was annoyed that he was there and was like, why aren't you at work? Like, that's what they said. And finally he was like, I'm too sick. I can't work. And then they were like, you know, the, the son and daughter were kind of, like, offended that their father was, like, cramping their, like, social activities by, like, being around. And then the wife was kind of, like, I mean, the whole middle part where she was talking about how, like, she needed more money and stuff like that. And she kind of saw him as not working as, like, the possibility that they wouldn't be as upwardly mobile. Like, mm-hmm. if he had a long-term illness. Yeah. Um... This story is kind of a Christmas carol, but the ghost that visits him is himself. And his, what is it, veriform appendix? And his appendix. The ghost is coming from inside your own body. <laughs> I thought, I mean, parts of it I thought were really, like, absurd. Like, the part where he, they're having the wake, and then these people are trying to make, like, some kind of, like... Oh, playing split cards. I thought that was really great. That felt super real to me, where they're, like... You know, oh, why should this funeral have to ruin our day? Like, none of them can bring themselves (laughs) to feel anything authentic in the beginning. They find out Ivan dies, and all of them think, well, I'm glad it wasn't me. They immediately start talking about what promotions they might receive or be able to get for their wives' cousins. Uh, They complain about how far, like, how much of a hassle it'll be to get across the city to get to, to visit his widow. They joke about how boring the funeral is going to be and none of them express any sort of even pity for Ivan dying like everything is completely is entirely about their own self-interest and it 
I don't even I don't think it's like a cartoony level of of shittiness that these people have. I think it's like a very real and raw kind of crumminess that everybody sort of experiences. Like these people knew Ivan but had no real connection to him besides like oh that's a guy I work with. So why should it matter to them when he dies and then once we get into Ivan's perspective when we see the life he lived, yeah, why should anyone care that this fucking guy died? He sucks. <laughs> Uh, I think there's an interesting writing technique at work in here where there's kind of a pseudo omniscient narrator. So we get a lot of stuff where he describes, he says that somebody had a look on their face or gave a look that said, and then he says something that is basically internal monologue, but it's internal monologue we only get from the perspective of the person who is being looked at. We never actually see really into anyone's head except for... Ivan and uh, I can't remember his name. Piotr, his friend, in the very beginning, because we we follow a guy from uh, the office where he finds out about Ivan's death to Ivan's widow's home to the funeral, and then we cut back and we cut into Ivan's perspective to talk about his life. Uh, but we get a lot of like what it seemed like people were thinking, and I don't know. I don't know what that means. I just think it's interesting that it's like he. He's sort of illustrating how concerned everyone is with trying to, like, pick up on the nuances of, like... Or he kind of shows how concerned everyone else is with what other people think of them by writing their interpretations of innocuous facial expressions like their omniscient internal dialogue. Do you think that the manservant actually cares for Ivan or he sees that as his like part of the work that he has to do for the family I think he literally said he like I said he he tells Ivan that he you know he would be doing this no matter what I don't know if he necessarily cares for Ivan himself I think he just has a kind of general compassion for humanity that Ivan you know hasn't encountered because everyone he's sort of surrounded himself with is so self-interested. I mean, I, I think that, like, in the abstract, Garasim probably doesn't really give a shit about Ivan himself, but he gives a shit about the fact that Ivan is a person. Yeah. A lot of times when the there's these stories about morally awakening and this, like, um, coming to grips with your own mortality and coming to grips with, like, the fact that people are dying, it seems like the character of death is more prevalent but i think in this novel it's sort of like a secondary kind of thing like he knows he's gonna die and he and the whole part is him getting ready for it but he doesn't really come to sort of an understanding that all men die and all men die alone he's kind of like his his thing is more like he's examining his life and saying i didn't really i mean he made something of himself but morally and emotionally he didn't make any kind of like progress in his like spiritual understanding yeah i think the thing is it's the way him confronting his morality is handled it's not so much that he has to come to terms with the fact that all men die or all men die alone he already understands that all men die he has to come to terms with the fact that he is a man that he's a person who is alive and living a real life but I think the end of it where he forgives his family and then he realizes that in some way he is a burden to his family the same way his family is in some way a burden to himself. 
and that he forgives them. What is he forgiving or what is he doing? He's letting them go. Like what, what like moral high road is he on that he feels that he's worthy? He has the ability to forgive he's people. He's not forgiving them. He's asking them for forgiveness. He doesn't forgive them. He under, comes to understand them. I don't think he's made, he's not, he, the point of that is that he's not passing a moral judgment on them. Because he understands that they're living the same life, life like he was. And he's sorry for contributing to that. But he can't even ask for forgiveness because the book is not on Ivan's side. Like, he shouldn't be allowed to have forgiveness, which is why he can't fully ask for it. I mean, I understand, like, Tolstoy saying, you have to start examining your life. You have to, like, be introspective. You have to think about things. But just telling someone to do that is not going to, like... If I said, you got to start examining your life, sir, you're not immediately going to go sit in a corner and examine your life. Like, you have to come to that, like, point... Where you, yourself, make a choice to examine your own life. Yeah, but he's not just telling you to examine your life. He's giving you an illustration of what... But he's telling his children. Like, Ivan, Ivan, the character, is saying to his children, you need to spend more time thinking about stuff. And they're like, I gotta go to this party. I don't got time for you, Dad. You can lay on the couch and groan all all you want. Is he telling... I don't think he tells them anything. Well, There's I, no point where he, like, lectures his kids about the... Because he doesn't even fully understand that revelation until he's dying anyway. Well, I think he wants to sort of move away from what he terms his artificial life mm. into what he thinks is an authentic life. Which I think his artificial life is his unexamined life. And his authentic life is his newly made awareness about the fact that he has not spent any time having... The problem that Ivan has is he hasn't had any deep thoughts. And then he realized, like, this whole vapid life that he's leading and that his family is leading as well is is not authentic. Because he thinks, like, the only real person in his life is his manservant. Yeah, and I, I think the ending is him realizing that's not the case. He, he uh, where, where does it say? Then he felt someone was kissing his hand. He opened his eyes, looked at his son, and felt sorry for him. Like, he, that, at that moment, he comes to understand that, like, oh, yeah, that was kind of bullshit. Gorasim is not, I'm not special. Gorasim's not special. We're all just people. And then that's that moment where he, he's, like, he can't even really formulate the sentences. He's just, like, sorry for him. Sorry for you. And then he tries to say forgive, and he just says forgo. Like I, I, I would have liked the, I would have liked this novel a lot less without that moment. But I think that moment is a rejection of that like weird fetishization of Grossman that comes earlier. The thing that's special about Grossman is he does take the moment to to act out of compassion, and he is the first person that Ivan starts to realize is also a person. But by the end, as he's dying, he realizes that like there are more people in the world besides Grossman, and there are people that he is his the way he's lived his life is directly affected in a negative way and that's his wife and his children so if he never would have fell off that ladder he would have never had that awakening he would have just continued living his life yeah probably i mean i don't know who's to say what would have happened when he was dying of old age but he was not on the path to have his realization before he he fell ill but then there's the thing where it's like well did falling off the ladder cause this illness or is this illness just just regular-ass death? Because the doctors can't find a reason for it. 
they they it's like oh maybe it's his appendix maybe it's liver but they never come down with like a definitive cause for his ailment and maybe they can't because the definitive cause for his ailment is just being alive <laughs> well yeah because he doesn't really i mean he de- he has like a slow increase in like this you, you sort of slowly become aware that he realizes that he's not going to get better yeah you know he sort of the whole time he's in the beginning, he's just sort of shuffling around, dealing with his pain, and then one day just lays down and just doesn't get back up. And then, but, but I think it's like kind of telling that he lays down on the sofa in the middle of like the house. Like it's not yeah. like he wants to be private. He wants to die in a very public way. Yeah. So. But meanwhile, the whole time that he's having this awareness, he's not really communicating it to other people he's just sort of internal he, he can't no i don't think he can he doesn't really even understand what he's going to be communicating he doesn't really have anything approaching full understanding until the moment that he dies and at that point it's too late do you think that he's his moral confusion is coming from the fact that he's afraid to die or is it two separate things that he's grappling with? One is like his unexamined life and the other is his like own mortality. I mean, I think it's things that are connected. Because I think part of the point is that like being able to live the right life means being aware of the fact that it's going to end at some point. Because you can go on living a perfunctory, decorous life if you don't think it's ever going to end. Because then what incentive do you, do you have to change the way you're doing things? What did you think of the part where he sees the bright light and he has that sort of like out-of-body experience? I think it's... I don't know. I think that's whole story trying to grapple with like, well, what, like, what does happen when you die? What is it like to die? And it's pretty vague. He sees the white light and then he says that death is over. And I don't know. I mean, I guess it's, it could be him coming to God. It could just be this, like, in his last moments of existence, he has this sort of serene moment of complete understanding where he just sort of realizes that everything is impermanent. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know what to make of it. What, how, how did you feel about it? I don't know if I was, like, just really revved up when I was reading this, but the whole time I was reading this, I was thinking about like this is those fucking baby boomers laying on the couch, but the, their millennial grandchildren are running around like what he deems having frivolous lives, and he's like laying on the couch groaning. Like I feel like they're kind of like, but it is. <laughs> but then at the moment he comes to understand that like that like he caused this. Like yeah, the reason why his kids are so vapid and such and are even more social climbers than him is because he raised them that way and he gave them the advantages to do that. I mean, he complains about his son, like, you know, not really making much of his life, but he created a life where his son didn't have to work. Yeah. But at the end, he doesn't, like, pass judgment on them. He he, he just comes to understand them. Well, when are the baby boomers going to wake up and realize that they created this whole mess... I don't know. Probably never, <laughs> but maybe on their, on their deathbed. Maybe when their vermiform uh, appendix bursts or whatever, their Hep C, whatever, finally takes them down. So, Did you read War and Peace? Uh, I read it, but I didn't finish it. <laughs> it's very long. 
It's it is very long. So I take it you didn't really like the story. I liked it. Really? I just kind of I really like what I didn't like was like this sort of patent like literary analysis that's like all over the internet. Like this is what it's about. It kind of was like it kind of like what people thought the novel was about was sort of like taken it's the same thing with a, like a lot of like difficult literature whatever someone tells you is the analysis of it becomes the analysis of it what so what is that that critical consensus you were saying that it's about coming to grips with your own mortality and that you know it's a sort of a metaphor for the process of dying i mean i think it's that but i think it's definitely also other things I can't say, I mean, you would think that I would like his later work because of his, like, more open-minded political stance, Mm -hmm. but I really, I I don't know, I just... Was it the religious themes that turned you off? Yeah, I think it kind of, yeah, I think it's 100% that. Because, I mean, this whole concept of, like, his, his awakening to the fact that he his social classes are not fair to people who work or to the lower classes or what he deems the lower classes, I kind of find that, like, I can see how that, that sort of turning the upper class and that strata of, like, intellectual philosophers turning away from, like, class structure in Russia kind of plays out later on when they have the revolution and things like that. And that like, um, other writers, like, you know, you look at books like crime and punishment and you look at things like, um, the overcoat, you know, those kind of novels where it's more about the, the working class and more about like, um, the roles that society plays in, like, the choices, the moral choices that people make. I find those to be, like, they're more complicated, but I think they're more interesting than something that's... Like, this is pretty heavy-handed. Like, Tolstoy's like, this is what happens when you have a disease in your soul and you're not, you know, you don't look inward and you you live this sort of, like, philosophically barren life. Uh, yeah... I, I think it's like I think the reason this works is I is it feels more like it, it's about Ivan struggling to understand and it feels like it's Tolstoy using the process of writing this novel to try to come to some sort of understanding about society and morality and mortality and I don't feel like it passes as much of a harsh moral judgment on anybody as I think you you were sort of getting from it. I mean, I understand uh, your read on it, but it's just like... I I guess it, it's, it's, it's not so much like, oh, let's feel sorry for rich people because it's tough being rich. It's just kind of this, like, bl- blanket... Uh, like examination of the effect of like societal expectations on everybody because everybody in the book suffers from it and the only person that's free from it is Garasim who just just doesn't care you remember like a couple years ago there was like a whole bunch of like really rich tech guys that were had this sort of like social awakening and were like we have to start doing things about helping Mm -hmm. people in the environment 
And then instead of giving like their massive billions amounts of dollars away, they like encouraged people to donate to like charities. And there was this huge backlash about like you're having like a social awakening and your solution is for people who've already had that social awakening to give money to your charities while you yourself have billions of dollars and don't care and don't give money to charities. Like that kind of like... It's the same thing. It's like he's having this moral awakening. Like Tolstoy's having this like sort of moral awakening. But it's like just saying you're having a moral awakening is not as like authentic as like, I don't know. It seems sort of. Uh, yeah, I think. That it seems the... like the same thing as saying as being like a social climbing vapid like debutante. I guess, but I think the thing that makes that ring untrue for me is the the Kaya stuff. It's just so much of this book is about like you're not special, you're not a savior, you're not singled out for greatness. You're a person, and everyone else is a person, and the, all the differences between you and everyone else are completely artificial because we're all gonna die. But I don't think that Ivan sees himself as like singled out for greatness his whole thing is i worked really hard to do everything i did everything right i did everything that was expected of me and i and you know i got you know materially awarded for my hard work yeah but he thinks that i mean it's not and then he realizes like oh that's that's the artificial life yeah but it's i mean it's not that he like thinks he should be like a king or whatever but he thinks by living what he perceived to be this, like, right life, he should be rewarded in some way and exempt from the stuff that's going to happen to the average person, which he sees as not having lived that right life. And what he comes to realize over the course of the novella is that that's not true. It doesn't matter. Because that's the thing, like, he keeps going, like, oh, all of this would be justified if I wasn't living the right life. But he wasn't living the right life. But even if he was, he would still be in this situation. It's all, the the act of examining your life or whatever doesn't change the physical positioning of your life. It just gives you a greater sense of understanding. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, maybe it's one of those novels where you have to read it at a certain time in your life. And it hits you perfectly. And then you yourself start your own sort of examination of your own life. Uh, maybe. I don't know. What do you think that that point is? I don't know. Maybe it's the maybe it's like one of those really crunchy things where you have to say the point is what you think the point is. Uh, no, no, no. I meant like, what is that point in your life? I don't know. I guess where like maybe you're at the same point in your life as Ivan Elliot, where you're, you know, you're at a point where your life is not completely over. But you're at sort of like, you know, like a stop point in your life where you need to make some sort of lifetime decisions. I mean, I think if you read this as an 18-year-old, you wouldn't, you would have a different reaction than if you read it as like a 55-year-old man who is, you know, his children are grown and his wife is sort of, you know, living her own life. And then you have to decide like... Are you going to keep working? Are you going to retire? What kind of life are you going to have, like, moving onward? Because, like, Ivan Elliot just is in the service of everyone until he can't serve them anymore. 
At which point they're kind of like disgusted with him. You know, I think his wife is more upset that she might have her social status diminished if he can't keep climbing the corporate ladder. Yeah. Um, do we have anything else to say about this? I don't think so. I mean, it's interesting, but... And it's kind of like the most accessible Tolstoy. You know, it's the shortest. It has the least amount of characters. It's the less sort of dense of his works. And I think, you know, people can read it quickly and it's easy to follow. But is it his best work? I don't think so. Um, yeah, I don't know. Probably not. I mean, I think if you if you want to invest the time to read something like War and Peace and Anna Karenina, I think you will get something out of it. So, what have you been reading? Anything less? Less what? Philosophically um, intense? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I uh, started rereading the first Game of Thrones book because the show ended and it was really fucking bad. And what was your hot take? Tell me, tell me what your take is on Daenerys after you've read the first book. I haven't even finished the first book. I'm still like, uh, I think I just finished the second or third Daenerys chapter. I, I just finished the chapter where she gets married. That book was published in 1996, right? I think so. Yes. And Martin has said before that, like up until what is it? Up until one of the later ones, they all took about a year or to write, which means he probably started writing the book in 1995, which would put it one year after the most recent cinematic adaptation of Black Beauty. Uh, I think the Daenerys chapters are her story, at least in the first book. I I didn't realize it the you know the first time through but it's got a real sort of mean streak i think directed at like princess narratives and like horse girl young adult literature there's this like a lot her sort of stuff kind of seesaws between this like you know whale rider girl coming of age story where she like she gets the horse from the cow and it's got this beautiful silver mane and she has this like miraculous moment where she rides it better than she's ever ridden before and she jumps over the fire like the horse has wings and then it immediately then the reality of what it's like actually like in those situations comes crashing in and she gets like threatened by her brother and reduced back into this like fearful kid and i think overall like she's kind of a disney princess character who ends up becoming a, a dragon wielding conqueror and possible like mad tyrant and uh, I think that's kind of interesting but can, I mean now that you've you've seen the TV series and you read the book so you sort of know basically what her progress is going to be like yeah. her awakening and her empowerment that's coming to her a lot of people think that the Game of Thrones the song of ice and fire for the nerdy mm-hmm people who follow who want to keep the book and the show separate is kind of like a mashup of sort of a lot of historical types of fiction because like you know it has that where that's sort of like that i'm just saying i don't think that the song of ways and fire would not have happened if it wasn't for the little mermaid and i don't think people enough people shout out that what i think is now think to be a pretty obvious influence (laughs) that's interesting the only thing I'm going to say about it is I think it's 
worth investing the time to read it. But if you don't want to read it, the audiobooks are really good. Sure. They're like 28 hours long, but the narrator is very good. Mm-hmm. So I've actually read the books and listened to the audiobooks. And I think if you're, if you want to know what happened in the books because you've read, you watched the TV show, I think the audiobooks would be really, really good. Unless you want to be one of those people who's reading it on the bus as a status symbol, then mm-hmm. keep your print copies. I'm not reading anything that heavy. In the summer, I only read things that I want to read. So I read a lot of murder mysteries, a lot of cozies, a lot of like bestseller, you know, dramas, things like that. So I'm also working my way through my um, Agatha Christie novel, so that's always fun. I'm reading Murder on the Links right now where Poirot is going to solve a murder mystery that happens in Spain. So, so far I've read, you know, 20% of the book and he hasn't made it onto the links, but there's a great, the cover is really great and has a picture of a guy in his old timey golfing outfit. So it should be pretty fun. I might like, a couple of years ago I was super into reading Dick Francis novels. And I was super into horse-themed murder mysteries. And I read a whole summer's worth of horse-themed murder mysteries. And I think I might actually want to read a whole bunch of golf-themed murder mysteries. I'm sure there's a cozy series that's set in a golf course at some point. Yeah, probably. So that's pretty fun. Alright. Do we have anything else? What are we reading next? Uh, well, next up is Volume 3 of Swamp Thing, uh, you know, by Alan Moore and John Toddleman, Stephen Bissett, and various others. Uh, and then after that, we're going to do The Litany of Earth by Ruthanna Emrys. That's a novelette, so it'll be a little bit shorter than what we normally do. Uh, it's available for free on tour.com. I can drop the link in the uh, show notes for anyone that wants to read it. It's a uh, dark fantasy sequel to The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Uh, so I think it'll be interesting. I think we'll probably touch a little bit on The Shadow Over Innsmouth itself, but I don't think we're going to commit to fully rereading it before that episode. I might try to, though, because it's not that long. Uh, and, uh, yeah, no, I think I think that'll be pretty interesting. I've heard that The Litany of Earth it was sort of a um, casualty of that kind of... Uh, Rabid puppies, sick puppies, uh, vote manipulation scandal that happened with the Hugos that kind of left it off of a nomination. Like some people have said that, that if that hadn't happened, that would have been nominated when it came out because it's from uh, a couple of years ago, 2014. Oh, okay. So it's fairly recent. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to read it. I haven't read anything by her. I haven't read any of her... Literary works, but I'm aware of her writing because she's one of the two writers on the big Tor Lovecraft reread series. Oh, okay. And I had just recently reread a bunch of those write-ups, and I was like, oh, you know, I've never read her book, so I figured it'd be a good choice to talk about on the podcast. I'm interested to see her take on, as a female writer, on H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. Because, you know, he had... Amongst his other complicated relationships, he did have a complicated relationship with female characters in his story. So this will be interesting. Yeah, I think so. What do you? What is an example of dark fantasy? What is 
what is the first book that comes to your mind when someone says the genre? Okay, here's the thing. I don't actually really know what dark fantasy is. I just kept seeing that as a description for what this was. Um, I don't know. What it would be dark fantasy? Uh, I'm hearing early examples include Anne Rice's The Vampire Chronicles, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough's St. Germain, and Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. I think it's just like... Okay, so it's kind of like it's fantasy combined with horror is the basic building block. So the Dark Tower is probably, I would probably call that a dark fantasy series. A lot of Clive Barker stuff uh, would probably be considered dark fantasy. Okay. I think it's maybe a kind of unnecessary distinction. So it's kind of like, would like Tanith Lee be like dark fantasy? I think some of it would be. I think Night's Master is probably a dark fantasy. I mean, it's about a demon. There's ghosts. Uh, it's yeah. I think that's pro- it's probably dark fantasy. I think places where you see kind of um, gothic literature and fantasy overlap would probably be you probably call that dark fantasy. I don't know. Yeah, I like that sort of slice of the fantasy genre. So I'm interested. Okay. Well, I'm sorry you got bummed out by Ivan Illy. Or I'm uh, sorry I bummed you out by my moral disease no. of the soul that I. <laughs> infected me while I was reading that because I felt fine until I picked up that novel and all of a sudden I had an existential crisis on the bus and just after that I was never the same. I'm just going to lay down on the couch with my... Oh, there was another thing I wanted to talk about in the story (laughs) that I'm surprised you didn't bring up is when he first sort of gets sick and he's going to the doctor, he talks about how like being sick became his job. And he would just, anytime illness or health would be brought up, he would have to, he would speak up in the conversation and have to talk about all of his routines and medicine and stuff that he's doing. And that felt super realistic to me, too. As a person who, like, you know, I remember when, you know, my grandfather had, uh, you know, was hospitalized for pneumonia and then he got, like, a pacemaker and everything became about, like, the routine of, like, being sick and recovering and, like, you see that with, like, a lot of old people. Well, yeah, because you kind of, like, when you're like, how are you? You kind of just went, because, th- like, this is, maybe this is very relevant. Because, you know, usually when you say, hi, how are you? You are, you know, your response is like, oh, I'm fine. And how are you? You don't really expect someone to, like, give you the full download on their, like, blood sugar levels and all that stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe that's kind of, like. Well, I guess if his identity was working and he's not working, now his identity has to be filled with something and it has to be now sick person. That's his identity. Yeah. So, which can explain a lot of why his family runs around avoiding him and rolling their eyes because they're probably just sick of it. I guess we're done. Are we good? Do you have anything else? Any other topics you want to bring up? Yes. I, I can't. I'm, I'm so filled with ennui. I have to immediately prostrate myself on the couch. All right. Spoiler alert. Stay tuned.